from BBC Radio 4, Britain's biggest paranormal podcast, is going on a road trip. I thought in that moment, oh my God, we've summoned something from this board. This is Uncanny USA. He says, somebody's in the house, and I screamed. Listen to Uncanny USA wherever you get your BBC podcasts. If you dare. You know you've got a comeback in you. When you take the next step, you're going to make it count. For your career, for your family, for your life. You can earn a degree you're proud of with Purdue Global. Purdue Global is backed by Purdue University, one of the nation's most respected and innovative public universities. This is your chance. This is your opportunity. This is your comeback. Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. Focus Features presents Back to Black. I want people to hear my voice and just forget their troubles. Experience the music and her story. Know this, I ain't no Spice Girl. Like never before. That's my daughter. That's my Amy. On the big screen. I want to be remembered. For just being me. Amy Winehouse. Back to Black. Directed by Sam Taylor Johnson. Rated R. Under 17. Not a minute without parent. Only in theaters May 17th. What kind of programs does this school have? How are the test scores? How many kids do a classroom? Homes.com knows these are all things you ask when you're home shopping as a parent. That's why each listing on Homes.com includes extensive reports on local schools, including photos, parent reviews, test scores, student-teacher ratio, school rankings, and more. The information is from multiple trusted sources and curated by Homes.com's dedicated in-house research team. It's also you can make the right decision for your family. Homes.com. We've done your homework. I also feel like Harry put his whole pussy, put his whole put, put uh, her, <laughs> Harry put his whole harussy into it. Today we are doing uh, essentially the podcast version of reblogging. Um, <laughs> we are going to be looking back at. Um, indie sleaze. The archive, if you will. Yes, we are going back into our tumblers, which, I mean, no longer exist. Mine, at least, mm-hmm, don't. Mm-hmm. Have been scrubbed from the internet. Mm-hmm. And we are going to talk about what is indie sleaze, um, the aesthetics and media that exemplified it, how it, you know, was bred and spread on Tumblr, mm-hmm. and how it's returning today in maybe a slightly different form because... This is Like a Virgin, the show where we give yesterday's pop culture today's takes. I'm Rose Damu. And I'm Fran Torado. So, you know, brush off your shins record. Uh, put on put on your Santigold t-shirt. I love okay. the shins. I forgot to talk about that. I loved, well, I guess the shins also, I mean, shins is like early indie sleeves because, you know, the first time I heard the shins was in Garden State, obviously. Oh, oh wait, 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 wait. Okay, 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 wait. Maybe we, should we talk about the Garden no, State? No, no, but Garden State is like 2004, 2005. It was preeminent. Yes. Devastating news today. I believe I have seen my last movie as an AMC Stubbanista. You are officially canceling your membership when you move to New York. Is that what's happening? 
You're abandoning, yeah. abandoning our principles. I, I'm abandoning. You're abandoning because Nicole it's not Kidman like, it, in the wake of. It's not like I can just drive over to the Grove or drive over to AMC sure. Sunset Five or drive over to Universal City Walk slash Margaritaville Emporium <laughs> and see a movie. But <sighs> if there was a way to go, I'm glad it was seeing Ticket to Paradise. Girl, were you glad though? <laughs> How did you feel walk- I, when we you, walked out of this movie together? Um, I did have a really good time, even though it's not a good movie. Okay, if you had a really good time, name one thing that happened in the movie that you enjoyed, that you remember. Uh, Julia Roberts. No, 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 no. Specifically. No. No, that is the a specific thing. I enjoyed Julia Roberts because she is the last movie star and has endless charisma. And every time she was in, on screen, I was having fun. Even in a bad movie like, ugh, like Notting Hill, which I watched for the first time in, since it first came out recently. And it's not a good movie. But Julia Roberts, well, I mean, in that movie, she at least has Hugh Grant to work with. Um, and in this movie, I think... George Clooney was not the best scene partner for her. But Julie Roberts, anytime she was on screen, I was happy to be there. Yeah, I mean, obviously their star power is, like, gonna get, you know, butts into seats in that theater. I think a lot of, like, the appeal, obviously, is just, like, us waiting for Julie Roberts to, like, laugh. Like, that honestly totally was it for me. Her huge mouth. Yes, and the thing is, she, her character is, like, a bitch in this, which, like, I love. Like, I love Julia in an era where she gets to be a kind of, like, mean or uptight character. But she doesn't, as a character, laugh until, like, halfway through the movie. Like, we're not really satiated until, like, far into the movie where she finally, like, cracks and she has, like, a little bit of, like, joy in her character. Because they know the power of of her laughter. The, and so the they, power they of hold on The power it. of going to Bali and and discovering yourself. Honestly, like, this was E. Pray Love. Redisco- rediscovering Re- yourself. Rediscovering, Because right. for anyone... For anyone who hasn't seen the trailer in which basically the, the whole, whole movie story is. <laughs> of the film is given away, it's about Julia Roberts and George Clooney who like fell in love very young, had a child, were married for five years, had an extremely bitter divorce, and then have to come back together when their daughter, after graduating from college, decides to get married in Bali and move there forever. And their daughter's played by Caitlin Deaver from Booksmart, mm-hmm. and she <laughs> was great in Booksmart. And was really bad in this, mostly because I think she didn't have a character. Her only character trait was that she wore the same pair of thin gold hoops in every scene. They looked like they were from Forever 21. And it just was such a weird styling choice and was extremely distracting for me. I don't know. I think the movie could have been much better if either... um, there were a lot more parallels between Julia and George's problems and the young couple's problems so that you were more invested in them and like it used the language of film to tell both stories simultaneously. Or if they had just kind of cut the young people entirely and it was just Julia and George. Yeah, I mean, I I just feel that there could have been more parallels between Julia Roberts' character in this movie and Julia Roberts' character in E Pray Love, where she also goes to Bali. Um, really, this... By herself, though. Yeah, but the thing is, maybe... On a journey of self-discovery. This really could have been a sequel. This, uh, maybe this is a sequel. Maybe this is the end of Elizabeth Gilbert's life after E Pray Love has happened. And she is descending on Bali to 
what is it? Her her fi- the the girl's fiance is a seaweed farmer. What the fuck? He's a seaweed farmer who has a who has recently inked a deal with Whole Foods. <laughs> yes. Wait, that's actually real, virgins. That's real. That is an actual line. In that the, is that an actual plot point in the plot movie. Point. He, oh, and he she, has and a also, deal with Whole Foods so that his seaweed farm is. And okay, wait, wait. It's legitimized. It's legitimized. And there's it. that when the when his home is introduced. This is a literal seaweed farmer. She wakes up and and she is in. A resort. She is in a five-star resort that is revealed to be like the kind you see on TikTok, yes. where like you sit up in bed and it's, the ocean the is oceans in front of you, in front of you like tropical plants everywhere, birds chirping. <laughs> and I'm like, I'm like, what? This is a seaweed farmer, and that's when he says, "Oh yeah, Jeff Bezos is lining the coffers of like I'm just filling cash like around like my mat, whatever." I'm just like so. It was so funny. It was just a bizarre. Script. It was very bizarre. Also, Caitlin Deaver's bestie is played by Billy Lord of American Horror Story mm. fame. And there's this one scene where she it, she's like a crazy party girl, yeah. but like none none of the jokes about her land, but the people in the theater were loving mm. her. But there's a scene where she George Clooney is like at the bar at the hotel at night because he can't sleep and he's having a drink, and Kaylin Deaver comes up to him. And I'm like, oh great, they're gonna fuck. Yeah. But, but then he starts telling this like sad story about how he and Julia Roberts broke up because their house burned down. And I'm like, did Julia Roberts set it on fire? Yeah. Like I don't get where this is going. But then the scene ends without them fucking and I'm just like no but like in the in the world of who you're telling me these characters are they would have and we never learn more about the fire it's so disorienting and also just like but yeah it totally it felt a lot like them fucking was in the original script and they cut it for like decent uh, no it was never it was never but what is the point of that scene then they're like at a bar because because george has to expose himself emotionally and like it's literally just there so that he reveals that he actually loved julia when she like she like slithers up to him like she is ready to fuck maybe it's just like the energy that maybe she kind of accidentally and it's us projecting it's us projecting what, what we would want to see I don't think onto we were the movie. Projecting. I think that we we were projecting. Well, well, the vibe the vibe was there, but th- that's not a movie in which that would ever happen. This is a very sort of classic rom com in so many ways, and the Julia Roberts part of it, at least, I was able to enjoy. Otherwise, it's not a great movie. Do not rush to see it in a theater. If you really want to watch it, watch it when it's eventually on streaming yeah, in like a week and a half. It's a great movie to stream because you can look at your phone for half the time and still have the exact same experience of the movie. Yes. Speaking of movies that are available to stream, Fran, you watched My Policeman, yes. correct? Now uh, that it's out yes. on Amazon. Our discussion last week, I did I did watch, watch My Policeman. I thought it was perfectly fine. And I think the reason I enjoyed what I watched is in large part because, unfortunately, I am among the warm-brained people that thinks that Harry Styles is really gorgeous and cute and adorable. And, like, I will watch him do anything, um, even when he, he annoys he me He is sometimes. very attractive. Yeah. He's very attractive, but for me, I also, as I said last week, really liked the movie, and I went into it expecting to hate mm. it. Or at least just, like, be totally meh about it. Um, But I really liked it. I think it's a very well-made film, first and foremost. Yeah, it was. Um, Especially considering the source material. I think it's a very good adaptation, even though I've never read the book. To me, though, like, Harry wasn't the thing about it that made it work for me. That's true. But I do think he was good in it. Wait, actually, that's so... Okay, so here's what I'll clarify. 
That is actually so true. Like, Harry doesn't make the movie. That actor could actually be anyone. And, like... Well, I think that's because the character almost doesn't exist. Yeah. So, this film is actually about a woman who falls in love with a policeman who is gay, Mm -hmm. is in a relationship with a man who, you know, runs an art museum... And they have this, like, very intense affair. The woman finds out. The gay guy goes to jail. And then there's this framing device of years later. The lover has had a stroke. Mm -hmm. The woman brings him into the home because she feels guilty. The husband policeman wants nothing to do with him. Blah, blah, blah. But what I wanted to say is that I think that Harry's character is almost like a cipher in a way. In that I don't really understand why these two people love him so much that they're willing to go through all this pain for him and i feel like that almost is the reason why he has to be played by someone like harry styles because you you need that shortcut of like oh this is one of the most famous people in the world of course these people are like so madly in love with him when in fact like he's like a vessel for them both to pour their love into marion because she like, is a young woman who just, like, wants to fall in love, and here's a guy who, like, treats her very nicely and, like, is sensitive, blah, blah, blah. And then for Patrick, it's, like, he is a gay man in the 50s, and his, like, opportunities to find someone to, like, love in this, like, small town seem to be, like, few and far between. And, like, you find out he has a lover who's died, and so, like, the first chance he has to, like, love someone he takes it and like it almost doesn't matter who that person is for either of them and yet he wrecks both of their lives yeah and and they wreck each other's lives yeah and actually you you're kind of pointing out something that i kept thinking about is that he really he's almost like an imaginary friend like he's almost like he he's totally. this like kind of like if the, the whole movie feels very epistolatory right she re, she's reading through the lover's diaries and, and I think that's how the book is told. Yeah, that, it, it's, yeah. I could have guessed as much, you know? Like, <laughs> Virgins also, please know, this is not a, a really a romance. It's a drama, okay? There, it, is a, it is a sad gay period drama. Yeah, and it's honestly, there are three protagonists. Okay, so in a lot of ways, I really think this is Patrick's movie. And I think there's a couple things that are, like, at war mm-hmm. with that. Like, I think in the way that this movie's being marketed, it's Harry's movie. In the way that I, I at least as um as a viewer, experienced it, it is Patrick's movie. And then I think the framing mm-hmm. of it is Marion's movie, which I think is part of the problem. Because she yeah. does something truly horrible and gets away with it in a way and we're sort of like asked by the film to forgive her and see the the life she's lived as this man's beard as like a a fair trade for the truly awful thing that she did and i i just like don't accept that like she outed someone and had him sent to prison where he was brutalized And this is kind of where we start talking about, I think, like, this whole genre of sad gay period films. Like, what I didn't understand is what happened in the 40 years between when Patrick was in prison and when he has the stroke and comes to live with them. Because, like, that's where I think the fatal flaw of this film, and I'm sure the book that it's based on really is, is that 
are we supposed to believe that he had no other opportunity in his life to find a fulfilling romantic relationship in those 40 years? He was just out there waiting to have a stroke and be sent back to his lover who abandoned him and the woman who sent him to prison. Like, why does this queer character's whole life have to revolve around this extremely painful thing that happened to him? That is, I think, the failing of the story as it was written by Beth Ann Roberts in the novel. Like, there's no imagination that this person could have, like, gone off after this terrible experience and, you know, lived any kind of fulfilling life. Yeah, I don't know. Yeah, I, I, I agree with everything you're saying to an extent. And, like, the kind of sad gay period drama route has, like, we've... It's been explored, right? Like, I don't want to be... Do we need it anymore? Like, I think we'll always need it. But, like, that that's why you... I just think that the people who made this film should have been, like, more selective about the source material they were adapting. Like, I would never read this book and be like... Yeah, this is the gay story we gotta tell on screen. Like, there are, like, so many different period dramas, past and present, to adapt from literary source material. Hundreds and hundreds of stories that you could pick from. And you're like, I'm gonna do this one about the policeman. Well, I think it it was a big publishing sensation, so of course that's a reason. And then, if if I'm being generous, I think probably the way that you could think about it is like, well, okay, we're graduating to at least a sad gay period drama that ends on a hopeful note, because, spoiler alert, it ends with Marion leaving and Tom and Patrick seemingly, you know, like finding their way back to each You're, other. No, no, no. Which, like, You're giving them which, way like, too much credit. No, but 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 what I'm saying is that I think you, we understand that Hollywood is fucked up and that for a long time, the only way that queer stories have been allowed to exist in media is if queer people were punished at the end of them. That's, you know, like the legacy of the Hayes Code. But what I'm saying is, like, if I'm thinking with my, like, Hollywood hat on, it's like, well, okay, we're going to keep making side gay period dramas, but we'll at least let them be, like, kind of happy at the end. Yeah. You know? I mean, I don't think it's a progression, but I, I do appreciate you giving credit to to the story and, like, what it could what it could potentially offer the canon of, like, sad-ass period dramas. But to me, your wife of however many years saying, hey... It was me who fucked up your life and fucked up the life of your lover um, ages and ages ago. Oh, by the way, bye. I'm abandoning you with your ex-lover. Fuck you. And your ex-lover is also catatonic and can't even speak anymore. And you have to take care of him. That's not really a happy ending to me. No, it's not. Like, or in any degree, like in in any form of progress. And so like, and so, you know, I I just like thought that the movie was like very indulgent in melodramatic sadness. And that's okay too. Like we, it's okay to have sad movies. It's okay to have sad gay movies. But like, just as I said before, like it's not really adding anything to the canon. And so like, when we look at the broke back mountains of the world, right? Even something like Call Me By Your Name or Carol or uh, other period dramas that are like in the same breath of like gay dramas that we see uh, as Oscar bait. Like all of these movies are beholden to their period 
And therefore, they have to, like, reconcile their straight relationship in order to, like, have their romance. And I would just love for queer romance on screen to be up against something instead of in spite of something. And, like, this shrew, like, wife archetype, we've seen this already. We've seen Michelle Williams do this and Anne Hathaway or whatever. We've seen, like, Alicia Vikander do it. We've seen, like, so many different versions of this story where... The queer person is something to deal with. Their queerness is something to deal with, something to circumnavigate. It is an obstruction of the plot. And we, as the avatar of of the film, as the audience of the film, are working around that, right? And to like, I'm just over it. I'm like, I, I really am. I'm being like so like kind of spicy about it. Like I'm actually not that passionate. No, about I, this I movie, think it's but, like, I think it's very fair to have that critique and and it has been great to see in recent years, especially period pieces that have queerness in them that don't treat queerness as an obstacle. Yeah. Like, for some reason, this had me thinking of Our Flag Means Death, which does this thing that a lot of contemporary period pieces are doing, which is that they include marginalized actors and characters and stories about them. But, like... There are some things that do it, like Bridgerton, in which, like, Mm. they just create this sort of, like, race utopia. Mm. And then in things like Our Flag Means Death, like, there still is the acknowledgement of the historical context, but the period typical homophobia isn't used as an obstacle. It's the the plot that is the obstacle. Mm. And, like, I was just thinking about how at the, the end of the first season of Our Flag Means Death, there's an episode where the main character, Steed, goes back to his wife. And his wife is not an obstacle in him being in a relationship with the man he's in love with. It's his own doubt that is the obstacle. Mm. And, in fact, his wife, like, wants him to be dead and, like, be out of her life mm. and, like, ostensibly, like, would love him to be off having gay pirate adventures. Yeah, it's kind of why I really liked A League of Their Own, right? Like, obviously, the period was an obstacle frequently in the show. But, like, ultimately, they're up against, like, baseball. They're playing baseball games. Like, there's something that they can focus all their energies on that is like the primary thing to that for them to get around and their romance is one of the many mechanisms that is kind of like moving this thing along and like that's just like what i want to see in like a a futurity of like queer romance and i obviously i feel um particularly cynical about ones that come out in this year of our Lord 2022 that are just doing the same thing that we've been doing since Brokeback Mountain. Like Harry is just doing something that every cishet celebrity does when their celebrity peaks and they're like, hmm, what's like the, what is the next level of cis man celebrity stardom? Oh, I'm going to play gay to get an Oscar, like, and I, I, and I, I don't, I really personally don't feel like Harry Styles is as sinister as, like, a lot of people make him out to be on, like, the queer baiting like, front or whatever, but, like, this movie is so obviously a PR move for awards attention that also allows Harry and his team to benefit from what will be the debilitating horniness that his fans experience watching this movie like like teen girls oh yeah there was a there was a, i saw this movie in theaters and there was a group of harry styles yes. fans sitting sitting in my row and they were very excited about teen it teen girls going to go watch like a gay erotic 
barely, I mean, it's not that erotic, but like a kind of gay erotic where like Harry Styles is like the centerpiece of like, they are in a sedentary state of hormones. Like the, like that is all Harry Styles team is doing is like bombarding them, inundating fans with the horniest, most erotic possible Harryisms to make them into like just completely subjugated sedentary states that, so that like these fans can do whatever they want them to do. And I don't know, that to me is like a little sinister. I don't know. I think, I think what it comes down to for me is that this is a very flawed trope. This is a very flawed thing that we see again mm-hmm. and again being made the sad gay period drama. Mm-hmm. Uh, but, but the movie, but, but, but at least I think this, if, if it has to exist, it was made very well. Yeah. Like, one of the most effective scenes for me was when the older Tom and Marion go to the grocery store and they see the caregiver there with his boyfriend and Tom goes into his car and breaks down because he sees, you know, the the progress that's been made, the life he could have lived. And, like, yes, it's, like, more trauma porn, but it was one of the most emotionally effective moments for me. I mean, in the words of Harry Styles, it was a movie that felt like a movie. It was a movie that felt like a movie! That's for sure. I'm Katia Adler, host of The Global Story. Over the last 25 years, I've covered conflicts in the Middle East, political and economic crises in Europe, drug cartels in Mexico. Now I'm covering the stories behind the news all over the world in conversation with those who break it. Join me Monday to Friday to find out what's happening, why, and what it all means. Follow The Global Story from the BBC wherever you listen to podcasts. Focus Features presents Back to Black. I want people to hear my voice and just forget their troubles. Experience the music and her story. Know this. I ain't no Spice Girl. Like never before. That's my daughter. That's my Amy. On the big screen. I want to be remembered. For just being me. Amy Winehouse. Back to Black. Directed by Sam Taylor Johnson. Rated R. Under 17. Not a minute without parent. Only in theaters May 17th. The wait is almost over. Get ready for the 2024 NFL season as the full schedule is announced. Every rivalry, every rematch, every rookie debut, every game revealed. The 2024 NFL schedule release presented by Verizon coming in May. Live on NFL Network, ESPN2, and streaming on NFL+. Terms and conditions apply to NFL+. Visit nfl.com slash schedule release to learn more. Hi, I'm Cindy Crawford, and I'm the founder of Meaningful Beauty. When Dr. Sabah and I decided to do a skincare line together, he said to me, we are going to give women meaningful beauty. And I said, that's exactly right. We want to give women meaningful beauty, which means each and every product is meaningful. It has a a reason to exist. It's efficacious. You're going to get results. And then you just go out and live your life. Meaningful beauty. Confidence is beautiful. Learn more at MeaningfulBeauty.com. I have at many points in my life been involved in what I would say are sort of, you know, like counter-cultural movements. I have always been kind of like 
a punk, mm-hmm. girly, you know. But I think it's interesting how it, at certain times in pop culture, those subcultures have almost become the monoculture. Yeah, and exactly. I, and I don't think there's any better example of that than... Indie sleaze. Yes. The movement of, what's the era, would you say? Like, 20... Early, like, I would say maybe 2009 to 2014 is, like, peak indie sleaze. And I think a good way to start this is to define what indie sleaze is. Which will be, you know, hairy, but we're going to get into it together, I You know, yes. Indie sleaze is an aesthetic. It's a vibe. Mm -hmm. It's, um... It's a punchline. It's a punchline. To some extent. So I the the things that sort of I would say typify it are um you know grunge mm-hmm. lo-fi counterculture but it's this very specific counterculture that's through the lens of mass consumption it's counterculture that you can buy at the mall or at least yeah. that's what it evolved into right you have people that are on the ground floor of like indie sleaze movements that are you know the real kind of punk folks or lo-fi folks who are popularizing things like indie sleaze music or indie sleaze aesthetic so that they can be sold at Urban Outfitters or American Apparel. Mm -hmm. Um, And then, as you say, that becomes mass culture. Right. It's like, it's DIY that became... Um, B-U-Y. (laughs) (laughs) Um, It also, you know, indie sleaze... Because it started in 2009, it's very specifically this post-recession movement. Um, And I believe the reason for that is because, as we said, like it started as this very DIY aesthetic. So in the wake of the Great Recession, no one had any money. So it was this aesthetic that you could achieve with very little money Mm. because it was all about, you know, repurposing the aesthetics of older eras. There was a lot of um, thrifting culture, mm-hmm. like digging out your parents' old vinyl and their mm-hmm. old clothes. Rich people dressing poor. Rich people dressing poor. <laughs> but also, it was the recession, so it was yeah. a lot of rich people who were poor for the first time. I'm fascinated by the correlation between indie sleaze and the recession, one that I had never thought about until you brought it up. Like It's all about money, baby. Like That's how everything happens. In case the virgins at home are still kind of confused by what we're describing, maybe you and I could paint a picture of a quintessential indie sleaze person. Like, what they're wearing, what they're listening to, right. where they go. Like, just a, a, a little baseline, like, simple picture. Yeah, so I think to do that, we have to say a dirty word, which is... <laughs> Hipster. The the two are so inextricably linked. Oh, yeah. So when I think indie sleaze... You forget the word hipster. When I think indie sleaze, I think of someone in a flannel shirt. Oh, yes. (laughs) With those, like, black frame glasses or the, like, like, Jeffrey Dahmer glasses. Okay, I'm seeing... I'm also seeing maybe an American apparel circle scarf. And and an American apparel v-neck. Yes. Of that purple that was only sold at American apparel, a deep V. Deep V almost down to your belly button. Okay, maybe they even have an American Apparel pleated skirt that they've 
distressed themselves and, you know, they had to buy two sizes up because American Apparel is fat phobic. Yes. And they're obviously wearing um, Chuck Taylor, Converse Chuck Taylors. Okay. They're holding. Um, or Doc Martens, but like mm, Chuck Taylors. They're holding a coffee table book of Terry Richardson's photography. <laughs> and the, specifically the Lady Gaga <laughs> Terry Richardson book. Oh my God. I forgot about the era. I know. I discovered recently that my brother still owns it and I didn't say anything to him. And Jeffrey, <laughs> if you're listening to this podcast, Terry Richardson's canceled. Look, we all know that Terry Richardson's canceled, but one thing we have, like, let me tell you the aesthetic that Terry created, um, like with his photography, we just, you know, plagiarize over and over again and erase, erase his work in life forever, which is lovely. Yes. Like, I'm glad that we have just kind of taken his aesthetic and made it into, like, nothing. And that is, you know, more than I think almost anything what has survived from Indie Sleaze. And later in the episode, we'll talk about the Indie Sleaze revival that's currently happening. But I think more than anything, um, Indie Sleaze is remembered as an aesthetic. Mm. Um, it's also, I mean, that we talked about the Terry Richardson, so it's like the flash photography, party photos with watermarks on them. Uh, watermarks. People in the, the, I mean, Kanye West derogatory um, glasses <laughs> with the slats. Oh um, my God, the slat glasses. Oh my God, I saw someone wearing those like a few months ago and I was like, it's 2022. It's what um, are you anything doing? you could have bought on the street on St. Mark's Place. I have a question. Are skinny jeans coming back? Yes. Wait, that's disgusting. They are. That's bad. They are coming back. St. Mark's. I got a tattoo on St. Mark's. and Who hasn't gotten a tattoo on St. Mark's? It's, it's, I've gotten piercings on St. Mark's. Don't recommend. I've gotten, I've gotten things sucked and fucked on St. Mark's. <laughs> it is probably my least favorite tattoo as well. But I did... I did... I mean, I fooled myself. Like, I went into, like, a random shop and I showed them an image that I found on Tumblr. Oh no! Did, oh, well. but I did ask the artist permission. Thank you for bringing up Tumblr because <laughs> we can't talk about indie sleeves without talking about Tumblr, which is truly, truly where this um, movement, this aesthetic, this vibe um, originated, festered, <laughs> festered is the festered word. and grew, and I think really exemplifies the duality of indie sleeves, which mm. was a movement that was about aesthetics. And also about media consumption. Mm. And there was nowhere where that was more present than on Tumblr. Because you were defined by your taste level. You were defined by the things that you liked. And the things that you repurposed and reblogged. It's almost as, not to jump the gun on the thesis, but it's almost as if it was the preeminent fan culture that exists today. Oh, totally. BuzzFeed fan culture. Totally, because there were these two factions on early Tumblr, Mm -hmm. which was the aesthetic side of Tumblr, which was like soft grunge blogs. Oh my God. Remember those? Yes, I do. Where it's like uh, literally like an economy that was built off of gifts from the virgin suicides. Oh my God. Oh my God. I definitely, I'm pretty sure I got my virgin suicides soundtrack off of a live journal that I used exclusively to steal music. Yes. And, um, yeah, so there was that whole aesthetic side of Tumblr, which was, you know, like, those, um, like, mood board-esque type posts where it was, like, all different photos of things and quotes on things. That that was one side of Tumblr. And then there was the fandom side of Tumblr, which was, like, the fuck yeah blogs and the, like, early Marvel culture and... 
I mean, I I hate truly hate to bring this up. It feels apocalyptic. Super Hulak. I mean, this was the era of of Super Hulak of like <laughs> the combination of all these nerdy interests and people finding a place where there were so many other people who were interested in those things and they combined and turned into this sort of like Hydra-esque monster. Mm. And so you have these two sides of the site battling, you know, the sides mm. who like the like ED um Tumblr who wanted to mm. like and like the pro Anna accounts who wanted to just like reblog skinny girls in like various <laughs> outfits. And then you had the ones who wanted to like write John Locke fan fiction. Um and those two didn't always interact super well. Do you know what Super Hulak is? No, I actually don't. I, okay. I'm, I was trying to get gather it from context clues and I actually still have no idea. Yeah. So this was a time so Super Hulak is the amalgamation of these three fandoms for Supernatural, mm-hmm. the CW show. Oh. Doctor Who. Which Doctor was, Who. Which was kind of at its revival peak. With David this, Tennant. With David Tennant and Matt Smith oh. um, of House of the Dragon fame. Of course. And Sherlock, the BBC series starring Benedict Cumberbatch and Martin Freeman. What? Which had combined to become this one sort of mega fandom um, paying Tumblr's light bill, of course. Literally. <laughs> I mean, literally, actually, like, it's funny to think that the internet was so young then, but it really was, like, it It really was. Like, it was, a, I, I don't know that, I, I guess it was t- Tumblr and, like, um, the, the, the era of indie sleaze almost feels like when the internet went to college. Oh, I was in college. Yeah. But that's like crazy. It that's is, actually a true. perfect way of putting yeah. it. Um, okay, wait. I never watched Sherlock, Doctor Who, or Supernatural. Did you I've, watch any of those? I watched Sherlock and I was a little, I did tip my toes. And by, by my toes, I mean most of my legs, maybe up to my waist, um, into, into the fandom. I have read <laughs> some John Locke. I have read some John Locke fan fiction. Sherlock was good in the beginning. It's homosocial, right? It's like, it's not homoerotic. It's like very... No, it's, it's, uh, it's, it's a little bit of both. They, they're so obviously into each other and everyone on the show is constantly asking if they're a couple. It's what? Like, it's like very explicit in the text. Oh. But there's so many no homo moments <laughs> and there was such a fervor for that. And like obviously this was like the beginning of Benedict Cumberbatch mania. But if this show happened today, like, they would have just been a couple. But, you know, this was still mid-aughts, so they had to be not gay. And, like, Sherlock was maybe asexual. Um, God, the fan fiction for Sherlock must would, like, you know, kill someone in hospice. Like, but, God. but the reason that there was, that the fervor was so huge was because this was a, a BBC show, so each series was only two or three episodes. And then there would be literal years between the series. Mm. So there was all this time for fans to spiral and write fan fiction and, like, create fan works. It's actually very similar to – there's this thing in Harry Potter fandom called the three-year summer, which is the time between the release of 
Goblet of Fire and Order of the Phoenix. Oh, because we had to wait longer yes. for that book. So oh it ended up creating more fan content. I've never heard that before. Wow, that really was a long... Wait, did you say between which books? Sorry. Between Goblet of Fire and Order of the Phoenix. Oh my god. Wait, that's also... I, I, I can't believe I've never thought about this before, but Goblet of Fire is the hardest tonal pivot in J.K. Rowling's work. Yeah. And then she's like, you have to wait? Three years. The three-year summer is okay. what they call All it. Right, continue. It's giving Game of Thrones. Um, but so with Sherlock, um, that kept happening. There would be these long stretches between the seasons. Then the final season happened, mm-hmm. and there are all of these John Locke, which is John Watson and Sherlock shippers, who mm-hmm. are convinced that in the final series... They're finally going to become canon. They're finally going to be together. The final episodes happen. They are absolute ass. They suck. (laughs) The show ends. But the shippers won't won't take it as fact because they believe that there's going to be a secret final episode that's oh, going to no. air the week after the series finale These airs. These girls should link up with the Gaylers because... No, they are the Gaylers. <laughs> it's like, it's just, that's just what they've evolved into. Um, that doesn't happen, and honestly to this day, there are still people who think that a new Sherlock series is going to come out and fix all these problems. I would definitely suggest, if you're interested in hearing more about this, to go watch um, Sarah Zed's uh, YouTube video mm-hmm. uh, on the John Locke conspiracy. It's very interesting. We have a lot of virgins that that watch Sherlock or asked us to do Sherlock. I think we've gotten that suggestion more than once. But yes, I, I would. I, I would not. I would maybe watch. The first season, and that's it. Like, don't don't hurt yourself. Yeah. It really, the quality gets real bad um, towards the later seasons. But as I was saying, you know, that Doctor Who, mm. Supernatural, and also this was the very early years of the Marvel fandom. And all of those things came together in this perfect storm of... Fandom, um, as I said, festering on and Tumblr specifically, on Tumblr specifically, and other online communities. Um, and then that faction was kind of at war with the aesthetic side of Tumblr, which was much more, I won't say shallow, but it was a lot. It, I mean, it was how a lot of people like came to understand their style or steal their style, like rip it off from other people. I mean, you know, Tumblr is all about repurposing someone else's ideas, aesthetics, mm-hmm. you know, and claiming them for your own. Uh, and not just that, but, like, it, it's it's ownership and also, like, it, it really, it's, like, real, real ownership. Like, even, like, the way, it's kind of, like, reminds me of the way a lot of people think about memes now, where they think that, like, because they, like, made a meme, it's, like, I have ownership over this image. It's, like, actually, we're all just, like, re like rehashing. I mean, that's just <laughs> NFT culture. Yes, exactly, exactly. But, like, people would be, like, so, I remember on Tumblr, like, people getting into fights over, like, I made this GIF and you, like, didn't credit me or whatever. And I'm, like, oh, my God. Like, babe, you put it on the internet. Yeah, yeah. And also, just, like, the, you don't own the rights to fucking, I don't know, Lord of the Rings or whatever yeah. you, like, gift. Um, oh, God. Thank God we're out of the gift woods. You know, like, I do not want to look at a gif ever again. I know. Who posts gifts anymore? <laughs> Let me tell you, old millennials. <laughs> right.
I'm Katia Adler, host of The Global Story. Over the last 25 years, I've covered conflicts in the Middle East, political and economic crises in Europe, drug cartels in Mexico. Now I'm covering the stories behind the news all over the world in conversation with those who break it. Join me Monday to Friday to find out what's happening, why, and what it all means. Follow The Global Story from the BBC wherever you listen to podcasts. Focus Features presents Back to Black. I want people to hear my voice and just forget their troubles. Experience the music and her story. Know this. I ain't no Spice Girl. Like never before. That's my daughter. That's my Amy. On the big screen. I want to be remembered. Just being me. Amy Winehouse, Back to Black, directed by Sam Taylor Johnson. Rated R, under 17, not a minute without parent. Only in theaters May 17th. The wait is almost over. Get ready for the 2024 NFL season as the full schedule is announced. Bring it every rivalry, every rematch, every rookie debut, every game revealed. The 2024 NFL schedule release, presented by Verizon, coming in May. Live on NFL Network, ESPN2, and streaming on NFL+. Plus. Terms and conditions apply to NFL+. Plus. Visit nfl.com slash schedule release to learn more. Hi, I'm Cindy Crawford, and I'm the founder of Meaningful Beauty. When Dr. Sabah and I decided to do a skincare line together, he said to me, we are going to give women meaningful beauty. And I said, that's exactly right. We want to give women meaningful beauty, which means each and every product is meaningful. It has a, a reason to exist. It's efficacious. You're going to get results. And then you just go out and live your life. Meaningful beauty. Confidence is beautiful. Learn more at MeaningfulBeauty.com. Okay, so you ran multiple Tumblrs. I think you've discussed on the show before. I did. So I had my main Tumblr, which was just me. Mm-hmm. Um, are all these these? None of these are public anymore. No, they all they don't exist anymore. Uh-huh. I did. So when, <laughs> this is funny because we recently talked about True Blood. Mm-hmm. Um, when True Blood started, I was really into it, and I I never used it, but I got the handle Fuck Yeah Anna Paquin. Oh. <gasps> Because, you know, fuck yeah blogs were a huge thing. Yeah, yeah. Everyone wanted the fuck yeah blank. Oh, my. uh, You got the first. The hours that I spent on fuck yeah Lady Gaga because, (gasps) you know, like 2009 Tumblr, Gaga had just become a thing. Mm -hmm. And I would say, like, especially after um, the fame monster, Mm. that was, I mean, I spent all my time on Tumblr looking at images of Lady Gaga. Um, And I think she, more than any other pop star in her field for a very long time, was so aesthetics-driven. Like, she was a creative director. You knew her as a creative director first, beyond being an amazing music artist, and that obviously translated to Tumblr culture exquisitely, because when she does the paparazzi, you know, um, performance at the MTV Music Awards, or when she does the Bad Romance music video or whatever, those things are, like, crystallinely perfect for Tumblr culture and obsession over Yeah, and she was ooky spooky, mm-hmm. which Tumblr loves, and mm-hmm. she also... She was alt. <laughs> she was alt, and also there was this feeling, especially in the early years of her career, that it was very DIY. You mm-hmm. know, there was the House of Gaga. Mm-hmm. She was making... 
all of this herself. She was like creating things like the flying dress and like mm. that kind of shit. So Wait, that all that? of all of those things came together, I think, to make her a perfect artist for Tumblr. But those fuck yeah blogs existed for literally everything. You yeah, know? I didn't have one. I said before that I had a a Beyonce and Solange Tumblr called Keeping Up with the Knowleses. But like, I mostly just like went to Tumblr to, I, I just to talk from a personal perspective. I really um. I found Tumblr at a time where I was in a kind of, like, uh, emotionally abusive relationship. Sorry, I didn't mean to actually go that deep so quickly. But, like, I felt so low. Like, I had a very low opinion of myself. I had this boyfriend who was basically, like, bullying me within our relationship every single day. I felt like I... And I also had just come out, like, just a year before, essentially. Wow. And I felt like I didn't even know how to be gay quote unquote you know what I mean like Mm -hmm. I I because I grew up in the Midwest I and because I grew up in this cultural vacuum I left to college feeling like I was like starting from square one like as an 18 year old and getting I got a when I got a tumblr I didn't tell my boyfriend like I created this whole world in and of myself that I concealed from you know this person in my life and it actually set so much of myself free and helped me find so many of the things that I was interested in and in mm-hmm. tuned to. Um, well, me, that that was one of yeah. the great things about Tumblr was the anonymity of it. Oh, my God. Exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I think that, like, because you didn't have to put, like, your name and face on all this, I could do whatever the fuck I wanted and it didn't matter. Not that I was doing anything crazy on Tumblr. But, like... I mean, no, you're just like what jerking off to Hercules <laughs> for it. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah, exactly. But like, I, I think another facet of this is like my boyfriend at the time was trying to control my aesthetics and the things that I liked, and would like make me feel bad about music that I listened to because he recommended it or would, like, tell me that I, like, couldn't wear certain things or act certain ways. And it's like... Was this your silver hair era? No, no, no. Oh, my God. But that would be perfect for Tumblr culture. Very sadly and embarrassingly... Fran Targaryen. <laughs> very embarrassingly, my silver hair era was post-indie sleeves. Oh, okay. <laughs> um, but uh, all that is to say is... Tumblr creates this really beautiful kind of like, uh, I guess, vacuum, yeah, to kind of project uh, and imbue and foster slash fester all of your kind of cultural desires. And I just feel like Tumblr culture and a lot of things like it allow users to hyperfixate on things to make their whole personality totally. so that they the don't fixation is such a huge part of it and that hyperfixation and the obsession that we accrue on something like doctor who or twilight or whatever makes you think that because you're an expert on those things you don't actually have to learn basic life skills like how to make friends or like how to have a conversation but also a lot of people made friends through Tumblr. Yes. And, it, you know, even though Tumblr was a place where you could be anonymous, it was also a place where you interacted with people who loved obsessively the things that you loved obsessively. Mm. And if you could cross that, like, anonymous internet divide, you could find someone who you might be friends with for life. I didn't really make a lot of internet friends because what at the time that I was on Tumblr... I was also part of what I guess is 
the IRL counterpart of mm. the indie sleaze movement, which was party culture mm. and like the aesthetic, the like real world aesthetics of indie sleaze. So like I had a thriving social life. I was going to underground shows. I was going to see, you know, yeah, yeah, yeahs. Ugh. And like I was out in the world doing all the things that people were only doing online. So I didn't feel like I needed to make friends that way. Mm. So my first internet friend was made on Tumblr. His name was Ian. And we, you know, uh, like became friends. And when I moved to New York years later after college, Ian was the person that I stayed, that I crashed with over the weekend before I moved into my apartment. Like I slept on his couch because of Tumblr, which is so beautiful and crazy. Um, But I... uh, to the like uh, music comp- uh, component of all of it all, you mentioned the yeah yeah yeahs. This was kind of peak pitchfork question mark or like uh, or pitchfork came more, at the end of b- yeah. Era. This was more spin magazine. Spin, spin nylon, nylon, nylon is very indie sleeve. Oh my god! Okay, if there's one thing that I jerked it to, it was Jason Schwartzman on the cover of Nylon <gasps> magazine. Jason Schwartzman. Well, uh, Jason Schwartzman was a crush of mine, but more than that was his brother, who was the lead singer of Rooney. Do you remember the band Rooney? No, I do remember Jason Schwartzman uh, was, band Coconut Records. Yeah, I loved Coconut Records, yeah. but um, Rooney, Rooney, Rooney is a little pre-indie sleaze. Rooney is like very like California. Um, Robert Schwartzman, who's the lead singer songwriter, was Anne Hathaway's love interest in The Princess Diaries. Oh, I don't remember that guy. Do they both have that? Like they kind of they look very similar. Do they both have the um, sexy but Rob, nose? Robert's a little cuter. Oh. He's a little more like traditionally hot. I see. I see. Um, I but see. The, very similar vibes. And I had such a huge crush on him. And I once saw Rooney open for <laughs> Fergie in concert. Wait, what? Yeah, it was a weird pairing. Okay, not not necessarily a one to one. But since we're talking about indie sleaze, I remember driving. Four hours from Indiana to Chicago to watch Janelle Monet open for of Montreal. Not of Montreal. Isn't that crazy? That's, you're sick. Can you imagine a world where Janelle Monet opens for of Montreal? I mean, yes. their their collaboration, like the, their love for each other, actually was so beautiful because. At least from my eyes and where when I was consuming their music at the same time, I didn't think they really sounded anything alike and that they didn't have anything to do with each other. So the fact that they found a kind of artistic camaraderie and like work together to build each other's careers up, especially at a moment where Of Montreal is one of the most, you know, beloved bands in the Indie Sleeves era. I don't know. There's something about that that like crystallizes so much about Indie Sleeves. It's actually really wonderful and good. But that um, was another big part of Indie Sleeves was finding music yeah. through other bands, through blogs, Honey. through, you know... Blogotech. Uh, 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 blogotech. Uh, <laughs> through, um, uh, like, um, Brooklyn Vegan. Brooklyn know. Vegan! Um, wow. I think this was a time in my life specifically where I was constantly looking for new music. This was like pre-Shazam. And so I would, you know, this was the time of like going into an Urban Outfitters. Sorry to speak it into existence. (laughs) And like... Discovering. Discover. This was a time of discovery. This was a time of being like a sponge soaking up new culture. Or, you know, you walked into Starbucks 
you get your your grande blonde roast and you see the sing the free single of the week that you get on your little card and you download it on iTunes. Do you remember that? I'm pretty sure I found I mean this is, you know, tweet a different conversation, but I remember discovering probably Ingrid Michaelson through Starbucks. Oh my god, I that's Or like, no, I think I discovered Ingrid Michaelson through uh, an Apple commercial. <laughs> <laughs> There's so many artists like that where it's like you kind of discover them on accident like uh, I know Pitchfork was kind of at the end of Indie Sleaze, but, like, I um, I worked at this literary nonprofit um, during these, like, years that I um, was, like, working in Chicago, and I did go to Pitchfork every single year for free because I would volunteer for this nonprofit so I could, like, table for them. And I saw so many of these, like, quintessential Indie Sleaze bands, and I, I, I mean, but, like, a lot of them, it's, like, I wasn't even seeing on purpose. Like, I think I've seen Beach House on accident four times. Oh, Beach House Live is so good. So good. I saw them at Coachella, and it was one of the best shows I saw. The o- have- it was the only time I've gone to Coachella. Um, it was 2012. God bless you. And it was I that year I saw Beach House, Yeah, Yeah, Yeah's. <sighs> Grimes, and this was like early Grimes. Um, actually, I was I saw um, Dive. Do you remember Dive? No, actually. Um, I was at a Dive show, and it was when Sky Ferreira was dating the lead singer, <gasps> and she and I like danced together mm. in the because oh I was in the, in the press pit. Oh, okay. Wait. Speaking of Grimes, I remember going to Pitchfork to go see Grimes perform and sitting in the press. Or not the press area, sitting on the wings of the stage in like the VIP area was Lady Gaga. Oh, sitting there like, and mother. this is and this is when she is the most famous. And I remember gagging. I remember being like, oh, Lady Gaga's at this Grimes concert. It was like so surreal. Um, you know, we can't. You know, indie <laughs> like we can't talk about indie sleaze music without like really doubling down on the indie part of it. Yeah, yeah, this yeah. This was this was the time in music culture when indie music peaked and I think like the real peak of it was when Jay-Z was spotted at a grizzly bear show. And that's kind of when Grizzly Bear. When everyone realized that indie music had sort of become mainstream. Mm -hmm. And I think that is what like ruined not ruined, but kind of signaled the end of this era of indie music as we know it. Because indie acts and bands became actually the biggest acts that existed. Like, whether it's, like, Grizzly Bear or I'm thinking of, like, Vampire Weekend, those shows were Mm -hmm. huge. Boney Bear. Boney Bear, the shows were huge. (laughs) Wait, did you see the video of Taylor coming out to perform with Boney Bear? No. It just happened this week. Oh, my God. She came out and they sang Exile. Oh, Oh my god, wait, I'm in for that. Boney Bear definitely. She didn't sound great. <laughs> oh, that sucks. Well, does she ever sound like anything? Um, I Boney Bear was definitely the soundtrack to like my college era of depression and a very wintry Indiana University. Mm. And that those albums are beautiful See, I was, for I your was angsty more, period. I was more of a Fleet Foxes girl. Love if Fleet Foxes. If we're talking about sort of the male indie acts. Yeah. Fleet, I mean, I haven't listened to a man sing music in years. Right. But. Fleet, Fleet Foxes was definitely my shit. Like, I love White Winter Hymnal. <laughs> I mean, the uh, Helplessness Blues is an amazing album. Um, 
I love that album. I can, like, honestly, we should just, like, rattle off some more just, like, so that the virgins at home can, like, scream to remember. Um, MGMT. Like, MGMT. Um, uh, MGMT owned my whole. <laughs> <laughs> the Strokes. The I strokes. was very much the Strokes pilled. I, I used love to go to that one of the members of the Strokes um, owned a like secret bar in the East Village called Cabin and my friends and I used to go there and it was like very like we were like oh my god oh we my are so god. fucking cool <laughs> um do you re- okay Arcade Fire oh yeah Where the Wild lo- Things Are I lo- soundtrack I love Arcade Fire can I tell you Where the Wild Things Are the movie the Spike well, the they didn't do the soundtrack. Karen O did the soundtrack to the Where the Wild Things Are. Oh, right. Sorry. I'm thinking about the song, the Arcade Fire song that was the trailer mm-hmm. that, like, you know, it was, like, so beautiful and, like, also catapulted it into, like, even more popularity. But, um, yeah, Karen O is also Indiesley, very Indiesley's era, obviously. Um, when I was working at this literary nonprofit in Chicago, Spike Jones. Where the Wild Things Are, to me, was the pinnacle of culture. I had never anticipated anything more in, in in eons because I was so obsessed with, like, obviously Maury Sendak, obviously with, like, the Yayas already, obviously with Dave Eggers because Dave Eggers, if we're going to talk about literary indie sleaze era, is also that kind of, like, terrain of, like, culture. Um, did you uh, listen to Bright Eyes? No. Oh, my God, Bright Eyes is so sad. Were you a Belle and Sebastian girly? I, um, okay, I didn't latch on to Belle and Sebastian as much because I think that, like, the indie acoustic section of indie sleaze, for me, was all occupied by, like, Sufjan Stevens. <laughs> um, and the immense mm. discography that he just had already I feel like he came on the scene with 17 albums like he already had so much work that we had to like you know shuffle through I was never I was never a Sufjan girl um were you into Damien Rice not Damien Rice I know I I wasn't but some of my best friends were I haven't thought about Damien Rice I had to suffer through a lot of it I mean and, and then then we kind of spin out to the more sort of like bluesy parts of it like mm. um Grace Potter and the Nocturnals. Holy you remember shit. Grace Potter? Oh, bluesy. Okay, bluesy to me is like uh, Tune Yards. Did you did you listen to Tune Yards? No. I think honestly something that's really interesting about what we're talking about in the music portion of this convo is that indie sleaze is not defined by any specific sound, I could argue, right? Like we have when we have genres like pop or country or whatever like indie sleaze does not faction into a specific sonic thing that you can differentiate from other genres because there's overlap does that make sense yeah well because it's all based on being independent being underground and being in this time period and also a hallmark of indie sleaze is mashup culture Mm, so it's all about these different styles of music taking from each other, sampling each other. So, like, you know, the Girl Talkification I was going to say, music. did you ever see Girl Talk? I did see Girl Talk. I never saw them. I did see Sleigh Bells. You've, I, you and I have had... Uh, we've talked about Sleigh Bells before. Yes. I loved Sleigh Bells. Perhaps 
Actually, no, not perhaps, without a doubt, one of the best live performances I've ever seen. It was so, so good. And I they could went, not hear They for went a very week. hard. <laughs> yeah. I'm Katia Adler, host of The Global Story. Over the last 25 years, I've covered conflicts in the Middle East, political and economic crises in Europe, drug cartels in Mexico. Now I'm covering the stories behind the news all over the world in conversation with those who break it. Join me Monday to Friday to find out what's happening, why, and what it all means. Follow The Global Story from the BBC wherever you listen to podcasts. Focus Features presents Back to Black. I want people to hear my voice and just forget their troubles. Experience the music and her story. Know this. I ain't no Spice Girl. Like never before. That's my daughter. That's my Amy. On the big screen. I want to be remembered. For just being me. Amy Winehouse. Back to Black. Directed by Sam Taylor Johnson. Rated R. Under 17. Not a minute without parent. Only in theaters May 17th. The wait is almost over. Get ready for the 2024 NFL season as the full schedule is announced. Every rivalry, every rematch, every rookie debut, every game revealed. The 2024 NFL schedule release presented by Verizon coming in May. Live on NFL Network, ESPN2, and streaming on NFL+. Terms and conditions apply to NFL+. Visit nfl.com slash schedule release to learn more. Hi, I'm Cindy Crawford, and I'm the founder of Meaningful Beauty. When Dr. Sabah and I decided to do a skincare line together, he said to me, we are going to give women meaningful beauty. And I said, that's exactly right. We want to give women meaningful beauty, which means each and every product is meaningful. It has a, a reason to exist. It's efficacious. You're going to get results. And then you just go out and live your life. Meaningful beauty. Confidence is beautiful. Learn more at MeaningfulBeauty.com. I do think we should talk about the uh, the fashion mm. of indie sleaze because that more than anything, you know, once we t- once we start talking about the indie sleaze revival, I think that more than anything is where we're seeing that revival is the aesthetics of this time period. So, you know, we already referenced it, but American apparel, there's nothing more indie sleaze than mm-hmm. American apparel. And also American spirits. It was it was part of Ew, the uniform. I hate American spirits. I also think when I was rotted. a smoker, I was not an American spirit smoker. And if I asked someone for a cigarette and all they had were American spirits, I would simply <laughs> go without. You'd be like, no, thank you. I was. I'm definitely... good. I'm good. I don't want to have to fucking roll a cigarette to break it up and then choke through smoking it for twenty minutes. Yeah, the sage one or whatever. Um, yeah, that that was my cigarette of choice. I also honestly, I, I do think it was part of the uniform. You know, because I in these college years I I was a closeted like smoker for like almost two years did you know this I did not know a lot of people didn't know that I smoked multiple cigarettes a day I know that you smoke cigarettes (laughs) every time we go on vacation and we're buying groceries one of us 
Alice is like, should we buy cigarettes? We're like, oh, we're on vacation. And and I usually hate it because, listen, I quit smoking in 2017. I, like, went fully cold turkey. It was very mm. easy for me to quit. But I had been a, I had been a social smoker for 10 years. Mm. And now... I like to smoke a cigarette like once a year to remind myself that I hate them. Right. But, and also when you're on vacation. And also when but when I'm on vacation, it's a different story. Like and, when we were on Fire Island this summer and bought a pack of Camel Crushes. Disgusting. I was sm- although Camel Crushes were not my cigarettes of choice when I was an active smoker. I was a Camel Filters girl. Ooh, that's rough. That's kind of gross, isn't they're it? A li- they're a little hardcore. They're like Ooh. a little heavier than Camelites. Ooh, wow. Um, okay, Damn. but back to the American Apparel of yes, it all. Yes, 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 so we're talking skinny jeans. Skinny je- more than I think anything, skinny jeans are what... Skinny jeans and flannel are what this era of fashion was all about. But also... Thinness was what this era of fashion was all about. Actually, yeah, and say that. Like as like someone who was fat, you know, I mean, who is fat and was fat during this period in fashion, like all of these places were places that like it was very hard if you did not have like a very thin body to shop at, but like, you know, you found ways around it, you found ways to participate. But this was a time in culture where thinness was the aesthetic. Yeah. Like, I mean, we talked about, like, earlier, you know, ED and, like, pro-Anna tumblers. Yeah. And, like, this was a time when, like, we were still using words like heroin chic, which was, like, a very 90s thing. Yeah, but, like, your hip you bones know, sticking out. Definitely maintained until this period of time. and Which like, is, like, so great. Like, I know that, like, I mean, obviously, like, eating disorders were totally, like, permeant in the culture, but, like, Brands like American Apparel, I feel like Hollister and Abercrombie are also in this category, insidiously made things multiple sizes too small. Like, it yeah. it was actually so... I, I, I told this story already on our last holiday episode with Ira Madison, but I did used to work at an American Apparel, of course, because I feel like it's something of a Brooklyn rite of passage. Um, for I feel like a lot of my friends, like, that I know now, like, have, like, since come out of the closet as people that, like, worked the back room at, like, American Apparel. I worked front, obviously. Of course. I'm a sales girl. Um, But that... And because like, there was was always that one gay yeah. in American Apparel. It yeah. was all these like 13-year-old girls yeah. and one like college gay. Yeah, one college gay that's like managing all of them for so actually no, the one college gay that's reporting to a 13-year-old girl right. who like, you know, really will never Okay, maybe yeah. a 16-year-old girl. Yes. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, we probably shouldn't talk about 13-year-old girls in the context of American Apparel. No, cuz of the dove charney of it all. Yeah. Um god, disgusting. That whole institution's so gross. And then they like made their company into they like bankrupt their own company and then made a new fake shell company called Los Angeles yes, Apparel which and, can, and evaded all of their like debt and controversy. Yes, the um the Starbucks drive-thru that I go to in LA <laughs> when you pull through to get your coffee, your sit your car is parked right in front of a billboard for Los Angeles Apparel and it's just the same aesthetic like a skinny white girl with long dark hair and huge eyes in a pair of tube socks. Actually, is it is it actually um is it part of the drive-through window do they hand you your grande latte and also like a pair of high high uh knee-length leggings or whatever? No, but I I had several pairs of knee-high tube socks <laughs> from American Apparel. I had lots of deep V-necks. I had lots of circle scars. I had 
three different pairs of these high-waisted, like, uh, rider pants. And the thing about American Apparel, I swear to God, like, we were told when if people asked for, about, like, aftercare instructions or whatever, like, at the register, you would tell customers, don't ever wash these clothes. Because, I'm not joking, because... Literally, the first time you wash anything from American Apparel, the color immediately bleeds out of it. And so that is true. That's why I had so many pairs of these high-waisted black jeans because I had to wear things. You have to be in head-to-toe American Apparel in order to like work there. And those were my favorite jeans. And they would, after one wash, would look gray. I will say I do love an American Apparel hoodie. Mm-hmm. They were so comfy. Very comfy. Um, and the underwear. The briefs were really good. <clears throat> they were all I wore. I'm trying to think if there's any... The only thing that has, like, to me, still quintessential American Apparel is the pleated tennis skirt. Because most pleated tennis skirts I feel out now are, like, skorts or they're not the right you know, height or they're like Mew Mew, you know? And it's like, I don't know. I That's the one thing that like can't be replaced. But like, but like people just need to make more like circle tennis skirts. It's like a really simple product. Like why don't, yes. why doesn't anybody make more pleated tennis skirts? So then the, I would say the sister of American Apparel when we're talking about fashion is Urban Outfitters. Da, da, da. And they weren't, in that conglomerate of things owned by Urban Outfitters, right? It was Anthropology. I think it was just Anthropology and Urban Outfitters. Okay, okay. Um, Urban Outfitters was Mecca. It was my favorite store. Urban Outfitters. I mean, Ryan, my, you know, you know, Ryan, Mm -hmm. um, my friend Ryan and I used to call the Urban Outfitters at 14th and 6th Mecca. And that was, that wasn't an open late Urban Outfitters, was it? Um, they were open until maybe 10. Have you ever been? It has since closed, which was honestly devastating because I spent so much time specifically in the sales section of that Urban Outfitters. I bought all my gifts at Urban, my book collection at Urban. I probably records. got... Records. Yes, records, of course. I Record pro- player, those suitcase record players. I got my hipster handbook at Urban Outfitters, oh, I'm pretty no. sure. That was like a thing. My mother found my copy of the hipster handbook when I was in high school. And the, the handbook, you know, obviously is like very crass. And I think there's nudity in it. And my mom found it and freaked out and threw it in the garbage. Urban Outfitters was probably one of the first places where I, like, bought specifically um, women's clothing before I transitioned. Oh, yeah. You know? Or it was either that or, like, some thrift store. American Apparel was my gateway for that, similarly. And, you know, Urban Outfitters, like, it was a one-stop shop for mm-hmm. hipster culture yeah. and, and apparel. Because you could buy your skinny jeans your band t-shirt, mm-hmm. your flannel shirt, a record, a book, and then, like, some fucking stupid poster or, like, art to put on your wall and a beanie. Oh, beanies! The beanies! beanies. <laughs> although, although I will say I do think American Apparel had superior beanies. Oh, absolutely. Is there anything that you bought at Urban Outfitters that was just, like, prized to you, whether it was a clothing item or something from their gift store. I don't even know my answer. Oh, yeah. I I had a a pair of BDG jeans. BDG. That were, you know, like, I wore them probably every day for a year. Oh, yeah. When you find a good pair of jeans. I used to wear those, and then I had a pair of yellow high-top Converse. And this, like, blue and purple flannel button-down. And that was my uniform. Button-downs? For, for, like, the entire year of 2010. 
2010, 2011. Button downs slash cardigans vary this era. Like, mm-hmm. oh my God. I uh, had so many cardigans. I will ne- I would never in a million years in 2022 be caught dead in a cardigan. Sorry. Oh, I love a cardigan. I do not like cardigans. I ladies. love I have a I have a J. Crew cashmere cotton blend <laughs> cardigan that is one of my favorite articles of clothing. That's a, that's a gr- that's a great item of clothing habit. I can't remember the last time. I was in an Urban Outfitters. Maybe with the Indie Sleaze revival, um, there will be an Urban Outfitters revival, which I think is, is you know, like, I, I think now we can talk about the resurgence mm. of Indie Sleaze. So um, as much as I am not, like, a huge fan of trend forecasting, mm-hmm. there are some people specifically on TikTok who do it really well. And there's this creator that I follow, Old Loser in Brooklyn. Um, she makes a lot of TikToks about fashion, and she is a trend forecaster. And this time last year, she predicted the return of Indie Sleaze. And, I, and she really was the first person who said this. And in the year since, we really have seen it come back, I think, both aesthetically and in our media. Mm. Um, so I, I would say that the things we're seeing, you know, most of all are, like, the return of, like, outdated technology. You know, yeah. the, the original Indie Sleaze, it was, like, record players and, like, Polaroid cameras. Mm. And um, now it's, like, the girlies who are wearing, you know, wired iPhone headphones. Wired. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, exactly. The return of ballet flats, which are, I mean, I'm, I wore my, my silver ballet flats Those today. are way too nice to be called ballet flats. Well, Sorry. they, but I mean, they, they are literally ballet shoes. I know. They're ballet I know, slippers. It just feels, it feels derogatory. But they're also like another thing, they're like, they're silver and silver and chrome yeah. are a big thing that's coming back yeah, with indie sleeves. We're kind really of is. leaving gold behind yes gold was 2010s well well gold is like very this thing that's been happening the past like couple years this whole clean girl aesthetic the Hailey bieber thing Mm. the like slicked back hair gold jewelry Mm. and now we're going more towards like messy glittery dark makeup chrome Mm. like effie stone skins vibe i mean Skins, if we're talking about indie sleaze, Skins was the moment. Yeah, and obviously, like, uh, enmeshed in this is also the resurgence of, like, early aughts culture, which is maybe slightly different or has, like, overlap with, like, indie sleaze. Because, you know, I feel like I'm always, I seen, I now see so many girls out there with haircuts look like they're directly from 2007. Well, that was, so, I mean... Looking back at like 2020, that's when we saw the revival of Y2K. Yes. So we have now, like, this everything is cyclical. Everything Mm -hmm. happens in cycles and, like, specifically these like 20 year cycles. So we had the resurgence of Y2K, Mick Bling, um, and now we're moving into indie sleaze. It's Mm -hmm. like this very natural progression. Um, And also, you know, the indie sleaze movement was, as we said, the opening of the episode, a direct reaction to the Great Recession. Mm -hmm. And what's happening right now? We're entering another recession. Hell yeah! uh, So, of course, we're looking to an aesthetic that can be achieved with less capital. Mm.
you can follow us on Instagram at like a virgin for 2069. Slide into our DMs. Tell us what your favorite um, indie band is. Tell us what um, fan Tumblr you ran. Mm-hmm. Um, what are you excited about coming back in this indie sleaze a revival? And what do you want to stay in the past. How many physical copies of a Sufjan Stevens album do you have? Zero. Really? <laughs> Zero for me. Um, please leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. It helps us out so much. I'm your co-host Rose Domu. You can find me anywhere online at Rose Domu. And I'm Fran. You can find me at Squishco anywhere you like. Subscribe to Like a Virgin anywhere you listen to podcasts. And please leave us a rating on Spotify or a review on Apple Podcasts, even if it's a little sassy or salty. It really helps us out. Uh, like a Virgin is an iHeartRadio production. Our producer is Phoebe Unter with support from Lindsay Hoffman, Julian Weller, Jess Krainchich, and Nikki Etor. Until next week, see you later, virgins. Bye. From BBC Radio 4, Britain's biggest paranormal podcast is going on a road trip. I thought in that moment, oh my God, we've summoned something from this board. This is Uncanny USA. He says, somebody's in the house, and I screamed. Listen to Uncanny USA wherever you get your BBC podcasts. If you dare. The wait is almost over. Get ready for the 2024 NFL season as the full schedule is announced. Every rivalry, every rematch, Every rookie debut, every game revealed. The 2024 NFL Schedule Release, presented by Verizon, coming in May. Live on NFL Network, ESPN2, and streaming on NFL+. Terms and conditions apply to NFL+. Visit nfl.com slash schedule release to learn more. This is Raquel Willis from Queer Chronicles. Right now, there are close to 500 anti-LGBTQ plus bills in state legislatures across the country. Lambda Legal is leading the charge against these hateful bills that target mostly trans and non-binary people. You can fight discrimination and help write the next chapter of Lambda Legal history. To learn more about their open cases and to donate, visit lambdalegal.org. That's lambdalegal.org. With every CBD product claiming to do something different, it's nearly impossible to decide what's best for you. Lazarus Naturals pioneered the farm-to-front-door model of transparency where they handle each step of the production process to ensure quality, potency, and consistency. Scannable labels allow you to see the test results of your hemp batch so you can be confident in the safety and quality. Visit LazarusNaturals.com today. Lazarus Naturals, committed to improving your life as well as the world around you. Not available in Idaho, Iowa, or South Dakota.